Hey guys, my name is Leslie. I'm a Gold Coast filmmaker photographer and welcome to the Creative Chats podcast where I sit down and chat with creative individuals analyzing their career and industry. Today's episode, I'm here with my good friend, Karen. Uh, she was a police officer, turned prison officer, turned security officer, and now a writer. So we're going to get into all that and more. And uh, Karen, welcome to the show. Thank Love you. Love to have you on. Thank you. So uh, police officer, eh? What? What? What did you? Why, why did you want to get into that? What? What made you do that? Well, you've got to remember, it was a long time ago. How um, long are we saying? Forty years. Forty years. Forty years ago this year. Good lord. Uh, it was back in the late seventies. Okay. That I decided when I was at high school that I wanted to be a police officer. Uh, me being me and being the sporty type, didn't get a body like this on a catwalk. <laughs> Very sexy, <laughs> Karen. Um, I boldly told my parents that I would love to be a police officer. Okay. And they raised their eyebrows, thought it would pass, and I would find something else. Uh, that wasn't to be because I was so focused and determined from about the age of 12. Yeah. There was a show on TV back in the days called Police Woman, okay. and uh, that was the only TV show I ever watched. Fell in love with it. Fell in love with the job, the adrenaline. What was it about the show that sort of captured you at that spirit? Uh, I think it was the uh, the adrenaline rush that these police had. Mind you, it was a TV show, but I thought it was real. Yeah. I was 12 after all. Uh, the difference in it, I was never cut out to do office work. I was pretty, pretty much an active kid back then. I was always into my sport, uh, very competitive. Mm. So it was kind of a perfect fit for me. Yeah. So I pursued it and pursued it. I got told in my grade 10 year by my then, um, what do they call them, your guidance officer at high school. I think they have a different title Yeah, now. I haven't heard guidance officer. Yeah, but I mean, that's what we called them Must back be a Queensland then. thing, I yeah. guess. Well, that's what we called them back yep. then. Yeah, And uh, Mrs. Cameron, God, I love her. Um, shout she, out to Mrs. Cameron. Shout out to Mrs. Cameron if she's still there because um, <laughs> it's a long time ago. <laughs> um, Mrs. C told me that I might need to rethink because she didn't think that I would probably academically make it yep. because I was never at school for the academia. I was at school for the sport. So when people tell me I can't do something, Leslie, that's when the uh, horns come out and that's a red rag to a bull. Yeah. So long story short, I, uh, I became quite determined and in I graduated high school in 1978, finally completed my senior, which everyone was shocked about. Uh, 1979, I made the application to the Queensland Police Force and uh, shock horror to everyone, I was actually accepted because oh, awesome. there were about 250 to 300 female applicants and yep. only four were chosen. Wow. Why four? That seems like quite a low number compared to... It was to back then. Yeah. It was because um, you got to remember policing for females back then was very much a novelty. Yeah. Um, it was still something new. Yes, we had female police, but it wasn't until probably the mid-70s, 80s that women developed the same powers of arrest and everything as a male officer. Prior to that, they were more seen as 
crossing offices yeah. for children outside schools or see it's crazy how like so much has changed over the years correct. like now we see women everywhere correct. in police off you know yeah. force so gold because i work at um down at surface paradise and th- yeah there's always like groups of three of them and you know there'd be one or two males but you know sometimes there'll be groups of women out there and you know yeah. it's good to see that and like my brother's friend is also um a police officer just graduated yeah. and she's up now in cairns i think um um, but yeah, you know she's she's doing fantastic, and there's a lot more now in the force, which is good to see. Well, it was probably our generation of female policing that created the opportunities for mm. the ladies now, uh, because you've got to remember when I started in, I, I actually got accepted and started in 1980. Yeah, I went through the police academy, and we girls did the ex- identical training as the men. Mm. So. Uh, Whatever they had to do, we had to do. Um, But it was sad because once we graduated and got into the workforce, we still had the mentality of the 50s and 60s because we were going to work with sergeants who were men Mm. who honestly thought that women did not belong in the job. Yeah, it wasn't equal. It was not equal. And uh, I became a victim of that. And that was one thing that basically steered the course of my career and uh, that was one reason that my career as a police officer only lasted for eight years. But um, I'd like to think that I was actually told by the most senior female officer at the time. Uh, she'd made it to superintendent, a lady by the name of Veronica Kane, Superintendent Veronica Kane. When all was said and done and it was washed up, she said to me, Karen, you've lost your, you've lost your career, but in the process you've paved the way for women in this job because I refused to sit down and be sexually harassed. Mm. I refused to be put in a corner because I was a woman. I used to speak up. So what happened during that time at the, you know, in the police force? Like what? Look, I graduated and I was like every other graduate from the academy. I went in, I think, for all the right reasons. Uh, I had the very, um, what should we call it? I had the very... uh, naive thought that my family and my friends had the right to be able to walk the streets at night safely and if it was going to be me that created that safe street then that's who it was going to be i had no idea of the level of corruption um, because you've got to remember it was back in the days of the fitzgerald inquiry Um, it doesn't get spoken about a lot anymore but um, it was the 30th anniversary of the fitzgerald inquiry i think it was last year. for those who don't know what the fitzgerald inquiry is maybe just explain a little bit sorry yeah yeah Yeah, look leslie back here a lot of people in queensland my age bracket will remember this well um there was always whisperings of a uh, a corrupt government a corrupt police force and corrupt individuals and when you joined the job uh, you've got to remember i was actually the youngest adult probationary ever sworn into the police force in queensland at the time i was actually only uh i think it was i would have been 19 just over the age of 19 when I graduated in the October of 1980. So very young, yeah, very young. So I was to be moulded by that job, uh, those experiences and those people. And my first few months in the job, it was, I literally went to work every shift on an adrenaline high. Mm. It was what's gonna happen today? Uh, who am I gonna arrest? You know, it, yeah. it was a, it was a case of it was literally a job where you never knew what was going to happen. You still don't. 
But you enjoyed it and that's what you wanted to do. Correct. So I was literally, as I said, on an adrenaline high every day, every night, every shift. But then I started to see things when I was inside the job that I knew weren't right. A lot of things they don't tell you outside. You never knew any of this. Uh, And I was brought up in a basic uh, middle-class family. Uh, Both my parents worked. Um, My dad was a teacher. My mum was a nurse. Um, We were raised to know right from wrong. And so my morals and my values came from my family upbringing. And uh, you know when something isn't right. Yeah. And my first experience of it was I was still a trainee and I'd been posted to what they call mobile patrols up at a place called Petrie Terrace Depot. Again, a lot of old Queenslanders will remember this. Um, And our job essentially was we were mobile. We were in a car for eight hours so that we could respond to jobs quickly, efficiently. And uh, they placed me with a, uh, a, a constable first class, I think he was at the time. He had one hook. And we don't have a constable first class anymore. You go straight to senior constable from constable. Um, But this was a five-year stepping stone. Once you've got five years service, you could get your first way up. Correct. Now, this guy uh, drove to work in a gold Mercedes Benz, and he was a constable first class. So me being the naive police officer that I was, I went, wow, (laughs) that's not right. First clue. Uh, second clue was we were doing a four to midnight shift and I jumped into the car with him and he said, oh, I've just got a job down in the river. Kaz, he said, um, I need to go and see some people on a yacht. Won't be long. So we drove down to the Brisbane River and I watched him. We bought, I was with him. We boarded this yacht with some, um, I think they were Korean businessmen. Asian-looking businessman. I have no idea what was transacting. I had no idea what was going on. You're just following his his orders. Correct. Yeah. Um, whilst we were there, he had the car radio turned up very loud because you've got to remember back in those days there was none of the smart no technology CDs, we no had. No Bluetooth. Yeah. Exactly. So <laughs> no it was Spotify. like rubs two sticks together and you'll get us. But um, yeah, so he heard the radio and had a job. There was a, a an old one of our regular drunks in a bus shelter at uh, peak hour on George Street in the city and they needed the drunk removed. So he looked at me and he said, you can do that. So I I went on my own, did this job. And that was basically my first lie I learned to tell because when I got to the drunk, I needed some help help to to, because he's dead weight. So I called the the, uh, area drunks van, called the guys around, and when they asked me where my partner was, I said, oh, um, He's not really well. He's in the, you know, bit of deli belly. So I said I'd come out and do the job. So I'd literally told my first job, my first Mm -hmm. lie for the police force. Um, Felt terrible, but I was covering for my partner, which you did in those days. It was never a questionable thing in the police force. I got your back, you got mine. Correct. You never. We turned as a... Well, trust should be a big thing, you know, within the force, you know, like especially going out, you know, patrolling the streets and whatnot. Like you, you, you need to have that... All you've got is each other. Yeah. So back in the 80s, that was a very big thing. You had your partner's back, they had yours. And if you didn't do that, you were known as a dog. Mm. You did not want that label as a police officer. So I'd literally learnt to tell my first lie. Uh, We completed the job. I went back to the boat, picked him up. Uh, Then for dinner, I found myself at one of the top restaurants in in Brisbane at the time, out at Tuong, a place called D'Angelo's. And uh, I found myself sitting in my uniform 
at the best table in the restaurant. Uh, champagne was poured. Uh, lobster was being served. You've got to remember, this is 1981. Mm. Some serious um, coin being thrown Some around. serious things going on and me feeling sick to the stomach because I knew this was wrong. Mm. Um, leaving dinner and finding out that we were having drinks on a yacht at the Norman Park reach of the Brisbane River. So after that shift, I knew that all was not well in the state of Denmark, so to speak. So uh, I then had my first big decision as a very young police woman in the job about how to handle this situation, how to extract myself from a very corrupt mm. situation. Um, so no one could do it for you back then. Uh, you never spoke to anyone above you because you didn't know where the corruption led to. Yeah. We later found out through court that it went all the way to the police commissioner. Uh, because our then police commissioner, Mr. Lewis, wound up serving five years in jail. And, like, was it, like, uh, handling cash over and doing, like... There was money being exchanged hands, yeah. but, but, but um, yeah, he never touched the money. Mm. The dirty money wound up at his doorstep, yeah. but, but it was it was well warned before it got to him. But the point being, at that time, nobody knew mm. where the tentacles yeah. spread. So you went to work every day, you tried to do your job. Then on top of that, you had what I call the normal people in the job who um, you uh, were given an instruction or a job and you went and did that instruction or job. Then being a woman, I also found out, again, that there were men in that job that felt that we should not be there. Um, I had a classic example, and and again, in this day and age, if this statement was made to you, you'd never work again as a woman because the lawsuit you would have and the payout mm. you would receive would pretty much set you up for life. Yeah. But I went to a news station and I presented myself to the shift sergeant. He said, I don't even know what you women are doing here. You actually belong at home barefoot and pregnant behind a kitchen sink. So my coffee's white and two, love, out the back. Bloody hell. Jeez. I looked at him in shock. Never made the cup of coffee, by the way. Oh, good on you. Very proud. <laughs> Consequently, it's probably the downturn of my career. By then, the, the, the demise had already started, but yeah. Um, so uh, uh, I soon learnt that we were still very much in an era of, yeah, you're here, but don't ever think that you're a, you're really a police yeah. officer. And Just and a said, number. Yeah, everything we did after that um, became... A, a battle. Um, they said males in the job that if we got called to a job, would step back and watch just to see how you handled it and reacted. And you effectively earned your stripes. Uh, happy to say, I earned my stripes and I earned the respect. So Good the job. one thing I did walk away from it is male colleagues of mine at the time uh, always said they'd rather work with me. Mm. So um, I'm grateful for that. But having said that, um, another station I went to, the sergeant there thought it was fun to sexually harass me on on a daily basis. And he actually physically assaulted me. And until one night, he was physically chasing me around the table of the meal room. And I turned around and punched him. Oh, good on you. (laughs) Well, the only problem with that was he had me charged with being insubordinate to him. And uh, insubordination in those days was... Probably one of the only charges that you could actually be fired for as a police officer in our GIs, the general instructions, which is the Bible. And being like, you know, your, your boss, like you can't really say anything or do anything. Like, no. you know, your word against his type of thing. Correct, you know? correct. So, but me being me 
and this is why my career never went anywhere, Leslie, is because I had a mouth. I had a brain in gear and a mouth in go, <laughs> and uh, I refused to accept that. Uh, so I had lawyered up. I had a, a, a union rep from one of my stations, a gentleman of a man, uh, too, too nice to be a police officer, but he, he became a union rep and a very good one. And uh, he did say to me one day, look, Karen, he said, it's not about you anymore. It's about the fact that they want you because you, yeah, because you will stand up and they don't know what to do with you. So he said, I think you need a solicitor. So uh, the police union did. They they paid my, because obviously I was a member of the union, they paid my fees for a solicitor and that went on for the last five years of my service while I battled them. And uh, I engaged a female lawyer. Which, mm. which was even worse. <laughs> Double red rag. Just fuel on the fire, boom. Yep, <laughs> yep. And she was an amazing lady. Jennifer was pretty awesome. Yep. And she was able to, uh, uh, the day of the meeting that, that we were told to be at the district headquarters station with the superintendent and a couple of inspectors, um, uh, Jennifer just laughed and she said, it'll be all over in 10 minutes. Don't worry about it, Kaz. She said, you sit there and say nothing, which I did. So she engaged, in those days you could still smoke in a government building all of that because yep. you remember it's the 80s and she used to smoke white ox the, the oh i don't smoke tobacco. i don't know well it, white <laughs> ox for you smokers you'll know it's a packet tobacco so she'd roll very thick smoke so we're in this yep. very small room in this pool of smoke very blade runnerish yeah correct you could just <laughs> see for a movie the scene it was hilarious um and as i said uh, i have written a story about my time in the police and and yep. that does make one of the scenes and it's, it's quite funny i just can still see all the white ox. I can smell it. And uh, uh, Jennifer sitting there having a smoke and a puff, and she said, so, gentlemen, let me get this straight. Um, something straight out of the Godfather scene. Let me get this straight. Um, you, because if this goes to court, I'm telling you up front that the reason my client, Constable Ketley here, did what she did was to protect herself from a sergeant who'd wanted nothing more than to sexually harass her and have sex with her on duty at that station. So when we go to court, that will be our defence. Are you sure you want to continue with this? They knew about the sergeant's reputation. So in order to save him, again, it was nothing about me. It was to save him. They asked for a five-minute adjournment. Of course. We we took that five-minute adjournment, stepped into our office, which happened to be the ladies' bathroom, and laughed our heads off. And she said, it'll be, I told you, 10 minutes. She was right. Five minutes later, we literally stepped back into the superintendent's office. And after a lot of foot shuffling and paper shuffling and all of that, um, yes, well, uh, we'll... We'll drop that charge at the moment. But I got the lecture about you watch yourself, constable, yeah. and so on and so on. So effectively, Leslie, we won the battle. But not the but war. But the war was yet to be won. And as I said, you don't Crazy. get away with stuff like that and the people at top leave you alone. So yeah, I see, knew, you won that one, but, like, what's the I repercussions of that? Correct. So... Women in the 80s, yeah, as I said, for female officers now, it's fantastic because I see the girls on the street and I think, you go, girls. That's great. Because I said I wasn't the only one. There were plenty of us women yeah. going through the same thing. And I said it was basically your personality type as to whether you sank or whether you swam. Um, and I was told my literally my last day of the job by one of the most senior female officers in the job at the time, a lady called Veronica Kane, wonderful woman. She was a great support to me. 
she actually said the words to me, Karen, she said, you've, you've paved the way for women in this job, but in the process, you've lost your career. A great footnote to my life in the police, but true. Mm. Um, and I guess I was never going to go anywhere being such a mouth yeah. and, and pulling men into line. Well, I think it's important to do that, you know, not, not just to let anyone walk over you. Well, you've got to remember, Leslie, that in any workplace, I mean, you've got this hashtag Me Too stuff and all that from yeah. Hollywood now. How do you feel about that, by the way? <laughs> Look, I'm going to answer this with a, uh, I think, if I'm going to be frank and honest and probably create a bit of controversy in this podcast with you, I think it's gone too far uh, for the simple reason, not saying I was any better or any worse, Let's mm. put that out there. But back as a very young woman back then in a workplace 40 years ago for women, it wasn't just the police. There were women in journalism. There were women in TV stations. We all know the stories now. If you wanted to be a good – look at Tracy Grimshaw and people like that now who mm. are the same age as me. At what Tracy would have been through, you can only imagine. The stuff that we were actually subjected to was, was horrific – it was physical sexual abuse. They thought it was okay to come past and grab you on your bum and stuff like that. They, they thought that, men thought that was acceptable. Yeah. And then the comments, you know. Um, for example, as a woman in the police force, um, if I was going out with them, with them, if they knew I was seeing some guy, um, apparently I was a slut. Mm. That's a fact. If I wasn't seeing someone, I must have been a lesbian. So, so those comments that constantly drag woman, you down. And, as a woman, yeah. I never questioned them. Like no. if you were going out with a girl, oh, were you a gigolo, mate? Was no, that the yeah. same thing? No, 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 no. They could part, cast aspersion on my personal life, but I couldn't cast an aspersion on theirs. So it was completely locked and one-sided before you ever started. Mm. And I made a point of never, ever involving my personal life. Yeah. And for that reason. So I had enough labels. I didn't need any more. So with regards to the hashtag Me Too movement, I think, and I think what it's spawned in this generation is there's an overkill of it. I think we're blurring the lines now between what it is to be a man and what it is to be a woman. Uh, call me old-fashioned, but I just feel that. Like yeah. what happened in Hollywood and what goes on in Hollywood is, is, is pretty appalling, and I think we all know that. And... For the women that were subjected to that, I'm hearing you, sister. Yeah. I'm there with you. Go for it. But I think there now has to be a time where, as men and women, we move on this together and go, there's men that know what treatment is right and wrong. Yeah. And I think it will take you men to call each other out and step up on it. Yeah. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think women need to go, yep, we're women and we're, we're proud of that. And if a gentleman's going to be a gentleman and call someone out on that, then I think that's a fantastic thing. Mm. And that's my argument for the present. Yeah, because I remember doing a, um, a documentary with you at uni and we spoke a little bit about that before. And uh, you mentioned an interview on like ABC or something like that, I think it was, where uh, they were talking about how uh, one of the panellists was like, um, you know, women – can only do so much in this movement thing and guys have to can be a part That's of the solution right. in That's helping right. this forward so like you said if you're in a workplace and so, you know there's a bit of a sexual tension there or chemistry you know that type of um which is carried too far yeah which is carried too Without far consent yeah you know <laughs> guys feel free to step up and say look this is not right stop what you're doing and like you know 
control that sort of situation mm. and help be part of the solution Bingo. rather than saying, you know, men are just a problem and, you know, Correct. we can do it ourselves. Like. Correct. I think it's just a self-check thing. Leslie, there's nothing, there's no science, there's there's no rocket science involved in it. I think it's an easy, simple thing and I think this goes for any workplace. I don't care whether you're in the police, I don't care whether you're in journalism, whether you're in the movie world, whether you're a secretary, whether you work in an office building, whatever your workplace is, if you see something going on, yeah. you know that someone, be it male or female, it works both sides of the fence here. If you see someone in an uncomfortable situation, just step up and call it out. We don't need all the grandstanding anymore. Mm. Just call it out. Be done with it. But unfortunately, back in the 80s, we women were just never going to have that privilege because we were working for men who'd been in that job since the 50s, the 60s. They were comfortable. They were so ingrained into what it was to be a man back then and the police was a manly job. So we really were moving that glass ceiling at a, at a rate that was just unbelievable. Mm. So I'd like to think that my legacy, if there is one, of being in that <laughs> job was what women have today, we helped get them that. And I mean, we now have a female commissioner here in Queensland, a commissioner of police, Katarina Carroll. And uh, I was so excited when yep. she finally got the job because I actually said in my interview at the time with the then commissioner, Mr. Lewis, he, his question to me was, so if you become a police officer, what is it you'd like to achieve? And I'll never forget this 18 and a half year old kid, Leslie, and I sat there and I looked him straight in the eye and I said, I want to be the first female commissioner, sir. He must have thought, wow, kiddo. Bit crazy. <laughs> crazy, <laughs> but I'll roll with it. Um, so, and I do believe if if my history's right, Katerina got sworn in in about 1983. So she was a part of this movement. Yeah. So for her to get through to this and be to where she is, and I think that's just incredible. Yeah, she must and have gone through a lot to, to get to where she is now. Correct. So massive change in 40 years of policing. Yeah. Yeah. Seems so long now. Yeah. <laughs> 40 years, you know. It's like, what's that mean? Like 60-something years? Jeez. 40 years. So it just means I'm old, mate. <laughs> Oh, you're young, you're pretty young. I mean, you know. Uh, happy days. So what happened after that? Like, yeah, you had your lawyer, you went through all that. What's sort of like the next step Well, then? look, it was 1988. Uh, 1986, sorry, I think we had the rumblings of the Fitzgerald Inquiry. Yep. So for, for people who may see this anywhere in, in cyberspace that this goes, um, the corruption in the Queensland Police Force was pretty pretty bad and it was coming to a head. Yep. And the rumblings were so much that um, our ABC TV, um, there was a show called Four Corners still going today. Yep. And I do believe it was a journalist by the name of Dickie, Phil Dickey, started turning some rocks up um, within inner, inner city Brisbane about brothels and, and licensing and, and um Areas where police could become pretty vulnerable and money changed hands. And and it got to the point where the evidence was so strong that they they decided to hold an inquiry into an official inquiry. And the, the um, it was a retired judge by the name of Tony Fitzgerald. He presided over it. And I believe it went for nearly three years. It was a long time. So in my time, I saw that. Um, it was 1986 and, and I was going to work some days and going 
What's well, it going to be like? Yeah. yeah, the person that I was working beside turns out that they'd been taken overnight mm. and were now in a jail cell. It, it was quite shocking. And and it was all the news ever was back then in Brisbane. It was it was amazing. Um, and, and to move so rapid as well, you know. Correct, it's... correct. So for all of my rumblings about how I did not like what I was seeing, I didn't. And part of my problem was I wouldn't become a part of that game. I refused yeah. to be crooked. Uh, I was shown op- ample opportunity, as I alluded mm. to earlier, with, with the guy with the gold Mercedes Benz. <laughs> yeah, the guy with the gold watch, you know, <laughs> um, the gold chain. Um, I refused to play those games. I was raised differently to that. And it, and it really broke my heart as a police officer because yeah. I was in there for the right reasons. And I found out that it was all smoke and mirrors. That's not what really was going on inside. So in 1988... Uh, August 1988, I turned back into the proverbial pumpkin. Uh, I did become very, very ill uh, through the stress and pressure of it all. And the specialist I was seeing at the time, um, one of Brisbane's most prominent specialists at the time, uh, Dr. Heiner, um, he was a a chest specialist and I had some really serious issues going on. And he actually told me that if I continued on with it, he'd never get me well. Is that to do with the stress of the job? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I was told, I was actually told by an assistant commissioner um, that I would never make sergeant. He would see to it. And I've never forgotten those words. Mm. And I knew because I knew guys that I worked yeah. with that they had the same issue because they were who they were. The writing was on the wall. Yes. Yeah. There was so, no sort of future in that role. No, no. So it was time to cut the mustard there and run. So, and what did you do then? What was after uh, that? I sort of. Look, I went from job to job, had a bit of a break. Um, uh, I did some security work. Yeah. And then in 1992, they closed Bogger Road Prison uh, in the city and opened up a brand new one called the Arthur Gorey Remand and Reception Centre. Yeah. And funnily enough, there was myself and a lot of other police. We decided that it would be great opening for ex-police to become prison officers. Yeah. So I applied and lo and behold, started my career as a correctional officer. (laughs) So I was out of the frying pan and in the fire. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, Arthur Gorey, for anyone who's not familiar with the correctional system, uh, is a men's prison. It was what they call a remand and reception centre and still is today, where we virtually take people off the street who've been charged and if they choose to, that they think that they need a custodial uh, sentence and a refused bail, then they go there. So you're virtually dealing with people off the street, um, uh, dangerous people, people who are on drugs, etc., etc. So another job that's kind of unusual, kind of different, kind of dangerous all rolled into one, kind of fun. Uh, in a bizarre way. Uh, uh, and it turns out training as a police officer was perfect for that yeah. kind of background uh, and job. So I, I did that uh, and I spent eight years as a prison officer. Wow. So I um, thought I knew it all as a police officer. Go and work inside a jail. It's just a whole new world. It's a whole new level of crazy. So Yeah, I can't, I can't imagine doing that, you know what I mean? Like go there and the amount of things that you'd see and experience. Yeah. And yeah. There's a saying, once you've seen it, you can never unsee it. Uh, so true. true as a prison officer. And very sadly, look, I had um, – there's a, there's a fairly high suicide rate with policing in prisons and um, not many people realise that. But, but I think if you look up the list of yeah. jobs – 
um, you'll see suicide because you've got to bear in mind back in the 80s and the 90s, we didn't have back then what we have now, which is um, uh, counsellors and, and... A lot more support in their role. Yeah, people to talk through what you've seen, what, what you've gone through. Um, for example, uh, one, one job in the police force I got called to oh, in the very early 80s I think it was 1981. Again, I was a kid. I wasn't even 21. Yeah. Where a man had abducted his ex-partner's three kids and they needed a policewoman. Again, this mm. is what we were used for. And it was a night shift, uh, coming to the end of a night shift, 5 a.m. in the morning. Um, and we got there and this guy had a, a loaded shotgun. Now, guns were unheard of in, yeah. in Brisbane back Australia, in those days, yeah. pretty much. So... My dealings with with a person with a weapon that was loaded, and you've never been point, in that situation before. Pointed at me. Yeah, uh, the person was affected by alcohol, and in the room behind me were three little babies, literally babies that he had abducted. I'm now looking at three children, no real training in how to survive this. My partner and I, in a situation where he told me literally that he would blow my effing brains out if I made one move. I'm the lead officer on the job, so I'm the negotiator. Um, pretty much no life experience of this. And the reason I'm still here today and I can talk about this is because my partner and I worked in pretty closely together that day because, again, as I said earlier, you've only got each other. Yeah. And uh, Stewie Stanton, if you're still out there, thank you. That was an awesome job. Thanks, Stewie. <laughs> Shout out to you, Stewie. Um, loved your work. <laughs> <laughs> um, we actually had a couple of other officers that turned up to the job because they'd heard about it on the radio, thought they'd come and have a look. As they walked into the house, this person's attention was drawn to them. To this day, I can't tell you whether it was Stewie and I, but one of us actually leaned across the table, pushed the barrel of the weapon so it was pointing out of the back door because it was an old Queenslander house. And fortunately, the two boys that entered jumped on Tackled him this, and this guy him and brought him down and I got the kids and three kids were given back to their mother that day and, and four police officers survived. Uh, because we worked in together. See, something so, like that you can't train for. No. And after it, uh, I remember I couldn't hold a glass for about three days because I shook so hard. Um, no no counsellors in those days, no nothing. It was toughen up, princess. Yeah. Let's go to the pub and have a beer. On your shift did. next day. And back at work that night, actually. Yeah. So oh, by the time we got this guy charged and into the afternoon sessions of the magistrate's court that day, I think I got home from work after lunchtime, back at work at 10 o'clock that night. Um, so there was no chance to process, mm. no chance to. So you could ultimately see why police handling those kind of situations. It wasn't normal. No. It's not a normal day's work. It's not a normal event. You're dealing with the extremes of life. Correct. Add up that over eight years that I did. Um, no wonder I'm crazy. So, <laughs> so. You're probably the most crazy person I know, awesome. Karen. <laughs> I'm proud of that fact, Leslie. So um, then move that into a jail. and This the is times ten. The people, it's on steroids. The people that you've been arresting are the people you are now looking after. 
there's a whole separate book in itself. Um, yeah, because a lot of those will have a lot of hold on, uh, held on grudges. grudges. The trick was that you couldn't even let them think that you might have been a police officer. I was called out once for being a cop. Uh, worst day of my life in a prison because um, a big steel trolley was pushed into me and I was pushed into a steel door, thought I'd broken my back. The prison officer that I was working with on that job happened to be to an ex-police officer. Uh, he was an undercover drug operative. Good Lord. Um, he, if anyone was going to get fingered for being the ex-cop, it would have been him. Yeah, because he's um, you know, amongst all of them. He put a lot of these people there for a very long time. Uh, and there was already an action plan to get him out yep. should anything happen. They didn't expect it would be me that day, but it was me. And as I had the steel trolley pushed into me and pushed into a wall, so I'm caught. This inmate had done this and said, we know who you are. And uh, Larry, the ex-undercover drug operative, <laughs> I, I managed to turn around and Larry's just standing there going, no, I'm like, what do you think I'm going to tell him I was a cop? So fortunately, me and my big mouth and being able to talk, um, <laughs> took my, my way out of it. And I was removed from the prison for a few weeks so that they could hide me yeah. for a while. So kind of crazy cloak and dagger stuff back in the day and, and yeah, yeah, really interesting times. So my work life was for about 16 years was full on crazy. <laughs> I don't crazy. think crazy even sort of, you know, <laughs> hits the ball mark, you know, like it's just it it's, doesn't, oh. doesn't. nuts, absolutely nuts. But I said for all the for all the crazy stuff, they were some of the greatest days of my life. Mm. Uh, because funnily enough, in the in the police, um, we had some fun times too. I mean, you'd get fired for doing it now, but but pretty funny stuff at the time. I mean, um, Christmas. 1983, I think it was, um, in my district I served at, we had a, a, a cement yard and we had the keys to it. We had to go and patrol it. Yep. And it was full of cement dust, ironically, in a cement factory. Wow. <laughs> and uh, uh, it was Christmas Eve, so one of my work partners at the time decided just because we were working, why should we miss out? Yeah. So we had a lot of grog that used to be donated in the day. Donated. Donated. <laughs> Um, and we thought we'd put that to good use. So, hey, we drank it, um, <laughs> got very drunk. Um, and the police cars back in those days, if anybody my age will remember, they were the old Ford Falcons, the XEs yep. and that with the big bench seats. And we used to have the big dome light in the middle and two little side lights. We used to call them the Mickey Mouse ears because it wasn't a real job. And um, uh, it turns out those side lights make a perfect drinking glass, seven ounce. When, we, when my partner set the party up, by the time it got to me, we'd run out of glasses. So my buddy just looked at the car, ripped off one of those little blue lights, swilled it out, filled it up with the champagne for me and said, stop whinging. So I was a true company girl, Leslie. I drank from a blue light. Tell me a little bit more about the, the end of the, like the prison and how you were. Prisons and, and corrections. Uh Back in the 80s and 90s in Australia, was really emerging from a from a rather um, archaic kind of existence. 
Um, there was a whole new ideas on on how prisons should run, and it was all based on the American models, pretty much. Um, and where I was when they closed Bogger Road down, the infamous Bogger Road prison, um, and uh, my ex-husband was a Bogger Road prison officer, funnily enough. So um, there's a whole separate slew of stories there, Leslie. Trust me, because um, he 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 was there during the 70s. Um, and amazing, amazing stories. And a lot yep. of his colleagues I worked for and with uh, moving through Arthur Gorry and then I went into Queensland Corrections and worked at Morton A Correctional Centre. And I worked with a lot of the people that had worked with him and those guys can seriously tell you some amazing stories. Um, so, yeah, amazing times. But Arthur Gorry was privately run by uh, a big American outfit called Wackenhut Corrections and they traded under a different name here but um, they were the parent company and the the person in charge of it, the overseer, was a guy called Bobby Barncastle who'd been in charge of prisons in Mexico. So he was a very hard, hard-nosed man, yep. hard nut kind of guy. Always wore a three-piece suit, pinstripe, immaculate. And I'll never forget, we were doing our six-week training course to be prison officers, and we actually did it inside the jail walls at Arthur Gorry. And me, with my sense of humour, um, that never really stopped. And I think my humour helped me get through the yeah. job. And about four or five weeks into this training session, he showed up to see who these uh, custodial correctional officers were going to be, to put it in Barbie's Very terms. American. Very American. Very and we were never we were never screws. We were custodial correctional officers. Was the correct title? Very posh. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. So um, we all had a bit of a chuckle at this being Aussies, but you go along with you it. You go with it. Yeah. And of course, um, uh, there was a lot of personalities in, in in my particular squad. Very funny people. Uh, had an Englishman that had worked in Jika uh, um, Jika Prison in Melbourne, which is people in the corrections system all know. Wow. Badass kind of guy. Uh, Mickey Hart, Mick's gone now, God rest your soul, Mick. But I loved working with Mickey. We used to call him the English Bulldog because that's exactly what he looked like. Very hard man. Yeah. Um, but a, a marshmallow when it came to the girls underneath and he always used to make sure the girls were all right and we, we loved that. Yeah. Funny guy, Mick. But we'd all worked out our personalities and characters. So when Bobby turned up this particular day to meet us, um, we were kind of having a laugh about, you know, we'll see how the – Q&A session goes here. So it got to me and he said, he looked straight at me and he said, and, and you young lady, why on earth would you want to be a custodial correctional officer? So I stood up and in true Australian style, I said, I want to be a damn good screw, sir. <laughs> the entire good class Lord. fell on the floor in laughter. <laughs> Poor old Bobby Barncastle. The instructors just did not know what to say. And Bobby stood there. He kind of knew where it was alluding to, not sure where it was alluding yeah. to. And I said, ah, just kidding, sir. I'd like to be a really good prison officer. <laughs> For the first six months Bloody of my hell. service, how's that good screwing going, Kaz? <laughs> Fine, thanks. <laughs> I'm having a good screw. <laughs> so, oh, and that kind of set the tone for us. Yeah, opening up a brand new prison with with because the difficult thing in that Leslie was you had all old prisoners that were simply tipped out of Bogger Road, put into trucks and moved to Arthur Gorry. Yep. You had brand new screws like me, and you had very old screws from Bogger Road. So 
the mix was interesting. Um, never so what, what was it like working there as a female? Like, because well, a female in a felt, prison would yeah, have been a bit of... Never have I felt more intimidated, to be honest. Uh, more worried about my own personal safety, um, for obvious reasons. Because uh, let's face it, you're inside a jail, and most people, when you mention jail, they think of four walls. They've got yeah. no idea what goes on behind it. These people are just seen, oh, yes, and so-and-so was arrested and the court case happened and he was sentenced to 14 years for murder. You don't hear any more about it. But it's us yeah, that are in their life for that day 14 in, day years, out. day in, day out. And if I thought I knew everything as a police officer, no. When you're with criminals 24-7, you learn how they operate. You learn how devious they are. You learn why they are where they are. You learn that they really need to be where they are. It's very rare that there's an inmate there through circumstance. There are a few, and there are a few that you go, okay, join the dots. I can see why you're here, mate. Yeah. Um, as a woman, you had to run a very fine line because you do not want to become anything to them that is not respected. Uh, because you've got to remember that those men in there, women to them are usually goods and chattels. Um, they are objects of use. They mother children for them. They have very little respect for them. So you need to actually develop a relationship where if you want that inmate to do something, you need to be able to get him to do it. So you create a situation where there's mutual respect but if you're not going to respect me, buddy, then you're not going to get what you think you're going to get. Mm. And that was the line I took and that was the line I had until the day I walked out of that job. And fortunately, I know that I was respected for that. Um, and I ran into a very infamous inmate my first day on the job. The jail was brand new. Um, the inmates weren't getting what they call a buy-up, which is they can go to a store inside the jail and buy things. Right. Um, they were threatening to burn the jail down because of that. This is normal in any jail. Any mm. prison officer will tell you, oh, yeah. They don't get what they want. They're going to start, putting... start burning the jail. Yeah. And every jail, every good jail has a riot, of course. And the government actually set aside money in their budgets for riots, believe it or not. Interesting. We can't air condition a kid's classroom, but we can set money aside for a prison riot. So <clears throat> something the public probably don't know, but no, there you well, go. That's news to me. I didn't know that. Correct. So um, for anyone out there in political world, look out. It's true. You know it. But anyway, um, uh, this threat was very, very real. And I happened to get the inmate in my wing that I was assigned to that was going to be in charge of this. He was already serving six years or something for armed robbery, so he didn't care. Had a very devil-may-care attitude. Yeah. And he was the first inmate I ever unlocked. And I got in your face, yeah, well, if you don't effing well do something about it, by lunchtime this place will be burning. Yeah. And I'm thinking, God forbid my first day. I'm going <laughs> to burn. I got, through, I got through people pointing guns at me and as a police officer I'm going to die in a jail. Please, God, no, not today. So kind of a weird work day, as I said before. Nothing. First day as well, like, how'd you be? Yeah, yeah. you're going to get burnt. 
Excellent. So, <laughs> literally. So, <laughs> literally. So, for you people at work in offices, when they say you're going to get burnt, go with my job. Yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, I, I made a phone call, I thought, to a supervisor, but it went through to the 2IC of the prison um, who happened to be a, an old screw who was one of the few that came through as a prison officer and made it to management. And um, Gary was pretty awesome. He was switched on. So I explained who the inmate was and what was going. He said, we can't be having that, Kaz. And I said, no, sir. Please no, sir. <laughs> so he said, leave it with me. About 15 minutes later, I got a phone call from the, this buy-up store and they said, bring it, bring it, pretty bring your prisoners up, release the hounds. So I went to old mate, the prisoner, made him the manager. Mm. Any good screw knows that, get get someone to work for you. And I told him that this is what was happening. Get nine of your best buddies, you'll go up first, then another 10, then another 10. He looked at me and he said, you're bullshitting me. I said, if you don't want to go, mate, don't go. But if you burn my jail down after that, then so help me God, you're in a world of shit, mate. So you want to go to the buy-up store, go. Yeah. So he couldn't believe it, and off he goes, comes back with all his gear, happy days. So he thought I was kind of okay. Mm. <laughs> so, <laughs> so this inmate had a lot of influence among the prison population. Any issues, he kind of became a protector. You leave Miss alone, she's one of the good ones. Yeah. So when he got moved through the jail system and I went to other jails, he'd always appear. Mm. So I was, I was very lucky yeah. like that. But there were circumstances, as I said, where I was one day fingered for being an ex-cop and my work buddy was an ex-cop as well. And um, that's kind of clinch your cheeks stuff and I'm not talking about the cheeks on your face. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> and that really is a your ticker's going like this and your pucker's going like yep. this. So... Um, Interesting for anyone in the job, but again, yeah, being a female, yeah, we had to learn. And look, unfortunately, Leslie, there's there's male prison officers that got suckered in, yeah, and females that I worked with that I became very shocked about that it actually started sexual relationships with inmates. So again, um, a whole separate world. Mm. Um, a lot of stories. A lot of stories, and funnily enough. Um, it wasn't while I was in the job, but it was quite a few years afterwards when when um, my local area I live at, and uh, I actually have written the story, ironically, yeah. and I knew you were getting to that. Um, uh, when people found out what it is I'd done for a living, it kind of intrigued them. And I think, again, it goes back to uh, men being intrigued by women in that job. And I never understood it because I lived it. Yeah. And I had a mother who raised me that said, you can do whatever you want to do. So it wasn't foreign to me. It wasn't foreign until I got there and found out just how much the proverbial I was shoveling uphill mm -hmm. as a woman. And that's when it all was in my face. But at the time, I just thought it was part of the deal. Deal with it, work with it, move on. Um, so it wasn't probably until I left the prisons um, after serving eight years as a correctional officer um, that I realised I, I, I had time to reflect on what I'd done and I went, yep, that probably was a batshit crazy rise, Karen. Mm. That probably really was nuts and probably what you did was probably really stupid. But, hey, fun. So 
I had a local cafe at my local shopping centre and I always believe in, in looking after your small business mm. and uh, business owner. And a lovely guy by the name of Simon. Simon, if you're still out hey, there. Hey, Simon. How are you, mate? Um, Simon's an awesome guy. There's a place here on the Gold Coast called um, uh, The Horse. Yeah, I don't even know the place. Oh, The Outback Show. Oh, Outback. Australian Outback. Yeah, Australian Outback. Sorry, yeah, yeah. guys. Mm, local. <laughs> Simon uh, Duranti, very big in the horse world, him and his wife, uh, he and his wife, sorry, um, and they did a lot of the um, uh, horse choreography when the Outback was first opened. So Simon had a connection to that kind of world and he owned the local cafe and uh, I know he won't mind me saying it because awesome cafe and and Simon was so good at his job and and his business that he knew every customer by name and it was just you felt really special when you went to Simon's cafe and I'd been going there for a long time and I never said too much and one day he noticed my tattoo on my arm I have a tattoo of my my beautiful little puppy dog it's so cute yeah it is cute (laughs) and um, being an animal lover our conversation started literally over the tattoo. So my, my, my dog is my little angel there. Um, and we started the conversation and Simon asked me what I, what I do and I, I asked him to guess and he actually guessed police type of work. I couldn't believe it. I went, oh, Crazy. Is it that obvious? Long story short, out of that, the conversation ensued and I used to tell him some funny stories about the day and he said, Kaz, you really should write it out. You should do a book. You know, you should. Turns out Simon was one of quite a few people. Oh, man, I'd, 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 I'd buy that book, you know. Yeah. And I used to go, yeah, 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 sure you will. So, so over time with so many people telling you that you should write a book, you're like, maybe it's not a crazy idea after all. Finally, finally, the idea has been born, yes, Leslie. Yep. And, and um, Simon introduced me to some people and, and uh, uh, um, uh that do have connections to uh, the writing slash movie yeah. slash TV industry of what I am, of which I am not a part. You yourself have yeah. just done a degree in film and television. You you know all about it. Yeah. Um, and I became quite surprised that it was content that people were interested in. Mm. Uh, Did you just think in this, your own little story, why would anybody be interested in this? And like it's just – Taken off. Correct. And look, the first gentleman through Simon that that was really keen on this um, was a screenwriter. Uh, And he's done work for MGM Studios, all of that. Yeah. So I was hearing it from people who obviously know the business. And I said, but I can't write. And he said, I don't care, Kaz. Just put it down in dot point. I'll work with that. So this is going back about 10 or 11 years now. I had to have some surgery done on my legs and I had a fairly long recuperation. And During that time, I went, you know what, this is a good time to do it. Mm. So after my physio sessions, I used to make a cup of coffee and go out to the back on the patio and I just started the story. And I found I couldn't do dot point. Yep. I actually had to write the words as we're speaking now yep. virtually. So it became a very long process. So, so um, but I was very old-fashioned, Leslie. I wrote yeah. longhand. So, wait, you, because I know your process, you literally <laughs> wrote out the story, pen on paper. I did. All page, like, there's a few, what, over 10 pages plus, something like that? Uh, worked out at, uh, I've completed where I'm currently at at the moment, to fast forward just a little bit yeah. for you, where I'm at at the moment, I've written the story. 
but I need to complete yeah. the book. Um, a very beautiful friend of mine who, um, ironically, her ex-husband was was one of those guys in the police force that gave me some grief and we developed a great friendship out of that um, and oh, he nice. became one of my greatest protectors within the job because he respected how I worked. Greeny, if you're still out there, hi. Hi, Greeny. <laughs> Good guy. Um, his ex-wife, Lynn, we became best friends and we still are to this day and uh, Linny has her own secretarial business and I needed someone to put those words to yep. a good pattern. And believe it or not, Linny's done that for me pro bono at this point, Lynn. Thank you. Um, Eleanor Secretarial. So she's, work. so she's gone through your handwritten Correct. document and put it into digital form. Correct. Wow. And um, she now has her own business of assisting people into the workplace, yeah. uh, mature people, anybody. And a great title, Maturity Works. I love it. So kudos and shout-out to name, you, Maturity, Maturity Works. Maturity Works, Works. yeah. Um, so it was – and ironically, um, Louie, as she's known to me, Louie actually um, knew my story. So as she was reading the words and putting it, oh. digitising it, it came to life for yeah. her. So it's been an amazing journey for her as well. So the, the um, serendipity episodes that have been happening with yeah. this over the last 12, 18 months, Leslie, has been incredible. And as I said, I did do a documentary for you, yeah. for Union. That's kind of at that point I was writing it and I know you've got film yep. of me doing it. Yeah. Um, so the good old-fashioned, because I did try it on laptop. Well, you, know, you have to do what works best for you. You correct. know, like, yes, we're in a digital age and, like, it might be easier for me to, you know, go out and write something on, on Microsoft Word or an iPad or things like sure. that. But, you know, I guess the lesson that we can take from this is that, you know, if it works for you doing one technique over something else, then do it. You know what I mean? As sure. long as you're creating and getting it done. That's it. And the longhand worked for me because the story came out right uh, with the right tones in it, I guess, because yep. I'm able to describe things like that room with the solicitor mm. and the cigarette smoke, <laughs> uh, something out of The Godfather cracked me up. Um, and also there's a lot of stories about jail that I needed to be able to describe yeah. That so that people really can go. Oh. You needed the time to sort of think <laughs> yeah, about it and then yeah, put it down. Yeah. So ironically, when I did that, um, one of Simon's contacts said to me, oh, hey, do you know you can write? <laughs> I went, really? <laughs> wow. So believe it or not, um, I've been told a couple of times that, that yes, I can write. So so where's the book at now? Because I know okay. you've, you've said that you've written it. Yeah. Well, I, okay. Close to. Yeah. Um, look, I've reached a point with it, Leslie, where um, when Louis digitised it, it turned into about 50 A4 fool's cap pages worth. 58. 50 A4. So you're probably looking at a 100, 150-page 100, book. But a lot of content. A lot of content, yeah. But I'm at a point now where I need to expand on that. Yeah. And this is where I'm going to need the assistance of a, of a professional writer, basically. Yep. But through Simon, um, he put me in touch with another lovely gentleman who's been working with me over the last 18 months. Hi, Renee. Um, Renee's been wonderful um, with me because uh, Renee's been in the movie industry for a very long time. And um, uh, he had a contact, uh, one of Australia's top crime writers, um, 
That's probably pretty exciting. Very exciting, yeah. As I said, wow. I knew no one. Um, these people have, as I said, on a altruism basis at the moment, yeah. have been helping me. And as I said, this is where the beauty of it coming together. Networking Leslie. is a very big thing in the film and television industry. And, you know, and, and especially anything creative, you know, I might add, like, you know, just knowing – is I had a you might probably know quotes like it's not what you know it's who you know correct but I Very think much so. there's a, a lecturer at uni actually said that and expanded on that it's like it's not what you know it's who you know but it's also who knows you correct and I think that I was like wow that's actually pretty smart because like I could know twenty different people out there but then. If they're going to reference someone, who are they going to reference? Are they going to reference Absolutely. someone else or are they going to reference you? Absolutely. So you need to be in the front for, for, forefront of so yeah. many people's minds. Yeah. yeah. And for all these people to recommend you and to pass you on, like, you know that you have something special there. Yeah. Well, I was pretty excited because just as you've said, um, it actually shocked me, to be honest. Uh, just before Christmas this year, um, Renee – uh, had some contacts. One of these people is um, probably Australia's top crime writer. Mm. He's actually done 13 crime novels and he's had 13 movies made. That's um, crazy. He was also a writer going as far back as um, iconic shows in Australia like the Royal Flying Doctors and stuff like that. He wrote on those shows. And he's done a lot of productions up here in Queensland. He's Sydney-based, uh, an amazing an amazing gentleman. Mm. And um, Renee actually sent my story thus far to him. Now, anybody in the, in the writing world knows that you could write reams and never get it under the nose of somebody yeah. like that. So I was just so, so lucky and so grateful. And this was about February this year. Um, Renee very excitedly contacted me and said, he's finally read it. And I, I was feeling sick because you can imagine yeah. you're talking about a professional <laughs> crime writer. He's in the industry and, and my warblings, seriously. Um, so I was almost sick. I didn't want to know what it said, but at the same time I did. Yeah. So I said, oh, okay, Renee, let me have it. Tell he me said, about it, please. Yeah, please. He said, because he thinks it's amazing. He said, um, you've got it to the point where it's a great story. Um, you need to now get it to some writers who can help you move it forward. He said, I'm just too busy to be able to do anything with it at the moment, otherwise I would. Mm. At that point, I nearly passed out. I'm thinking one of the greatest crime writers probably ever. And he's telling me that he's just too busy with everything he's got on his plate, yeah. as you can imagine, Amanda. Yeah. Because he's got his own production companies, everything going on yeah. and stuff. So I, I, the fact that I even got it under his nose just blew my mind and still does telling you now. So um, he said, and it would probably be better off to be locally produced in Queensland Definitely. because it's based here. And he said, I've got some writers that I know would love this content. So that's the point we were at and then COVID hit. Yeah. <laughs> so we're kind of in a holding pattern. Okay. Um, but I'm not too concerned about that. At um, least you have at least you know that there's like um, some legs with this in potentially in the future. 
COVID depending, of course. Like we don't know when that's sort of going to finish, but you know, it's exciting to still know that, you know, one, you've had the Australia's top crime writer interested in it and said that, look, this is actually bloody good. Get it out there and work on it more. You know what I mean? So to have all that behind you and a lot of people pushing you to make this thing like, you know, okay, COVID happens, but then afterwards, you know, there's nothing that's stopping right. you from pushing that forward. That's so but right. in a way, like COVID also gives you that chance to finish the story, get it done, and then push yeah. it up to other people. Yeah. So yeah. What, what look, are you doing now during COVID? Like, what's your look, plan? I'm, uh, with regards to the um, to the to the to the book and to the writing, I'm comfortable with where I've got it to now uh, because I've had a, a crime writer and indeed a screenwriter tell me that that my style of writing is is um, uh, what's the word? It's people can get into it. Yeah, I guess is. It's the type of writing that when you read it, it's very engaging and interesting that they sort of naturally just go through Yeah, it. hopefully, yeah. And as I said, look, I see it as normal, but I, I get where other people would view this and go, Well, none of cow. us have lived that life that you Correct, have. So, yeah. you know, we're seeing a totally different insight, shall we say, yeah. into the workings of the, the police force yeah. back in that yeah. day. And, of course, you see old dinosaurs like me getting around, Leslie, and you think, what their story is and lordy knows there's 7.6 billion of us on the planet or something and as well, the sbs fun fact, always says fun fact that karen story. when we met i was a barista at maccas and you were literally just a customer coming in that's how we met because he made the best coffee True. i made the best coffee and i'm, I'm a coffee I'm addict True. <laughs> so because we were both had like similar passions and in you know interests and we had that um very outspoken personality. Like I think we just naturally got on, on really and then well. hung out and coffees and you've helped me with uni Correct. and all these sort of things. So, and but it just goes to show I, that you don't really know no. who's out there in this story. No. Look, might I add there, Leslie, because of your generation um, and this podcasting stuff, which is all new to me, mm. um, I see your generation and because I have um, stepchildren and nieces and nephews and close family, friends all your age. I love to see what you kids are engaged or you young people are engaged in and, and to be able to help you guys in any way is a pretty awesome thing. And mm. and it's led us around to this, which is just amazing, you know. That's so it. Well, you I said, never thought you, I'd do a podcast, you know. This know, is crazy you setup, you know. with people, this is what happens. And yep. it goes back to that thing you said before, networking. Yeah. And I think people realise that this is what it is. And it's only through me networking with people that my, my story exactly. has got to where it is. And as I said, the beautiful serendipity of people wanting to help me, which I am I'm just so grateful. I mean it's it's attitude with gratitude. I think you need to have um a, a feeling on life of of um being open to people and they will be open with you. And and as I said, my mate Louie, the fact that she with everything that she's got on her plate Sweet Kaz, I'll do it. Yeah, I'm thinking I owe Louis a lot of wine. <laughs> uh, so, so people like Simon, yeah, who helped move heaven and earth. People like Renee, who did all this. People like yourself, who who thought this was interestingly enough yeah. to do. Well, hopefully this podcasting. podcast actually gets out there to a lot of people and uh, you know really speaks the truth about the type of things that you know goes on in the world and and hopefully shed some light on other people's and situations. As I said, I think speaking it's, out as well. Yeah, I think it's a great thing for people, as I said, to know that when you see everything going on in the world today, where it grew legs from. Yeah, and I think it's it's. 
the last 40, 50 years is where it's grown the legs from. And it's people like me that we've lived it, we breathed it, and we changed it. Yeah. And that's the important thing. I felt like I was part of the change, which is, like I said, I see our female police commissioner now, Katerina, and I look at Katerina and I go, that's awesome. Every time I see her up there with the title of commissioner, I go, you know what? You did something I couldn't do, but I'd like to think I helped in the process of making it okay for women to have the respect enough to get there and for a male to look at her and go, yes, boss, no worries, and to take that gender-specific thing away from it. That's probably the thing I'm most proud of. So my police service to me wasn't a waste of time. As a matter of fact, I was meant to do it. Um, Same with my prison service. Mm. It was somewhere where I was meant to be and something I had to offer. And for everything it gave me, I'd like to think I gave 50% of that back. All right, Karen. So to wrap up this podcast, uh, I have a couple of questions to ask you. I'm going to ask every guest. Yep. Um, So first one is uh, throughout your career, what would you have changed and why? Do you know that's a really good question, Leslie? That's why I said it. Exactly. (laughs) Look, going back, if you want the truth, looking back over the history of the 40 years, the truth of the matter is, I probably wouldn't have changed anything because it was meant to be what it was meant to be. Um, I think that in uh, this lifetime for me, policing was was my thing. And I said it only only went back to a very naive right and wrong. Uh, I've always had a sense of right and wrong. That's my moral compass. Um, And yet when I went in there and found out what I found out, as we've talked about, it was a great shock. And then how women were treated, uh, I think all of those wrongs, needed to be righted. Yeah. I think the ship needed to be righted. And I was a very small cog in a very, very, very big wheel, but I'd like to think that my actions back then actually helped change yeah. that ship's course. And that ship's course that's on now uh, with regards to having a female police commissioner and and stuff like that, I th- I'm hoping that the little things I did, although they, they were massive agitations at the time, They'd be very minute now, but I'd like Mm. to think that those agitations in their time and place have helped make the difference that we foster now. I'm a big believer that, you know, things happen for a reason. Like, although in the moment, if bad things happen, you might not realise how this sort of affects other things and, you know, like get down bad and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, looking back at my own life, like I've had a few um, things go wrong, but like, you know, knowing that, you know, those things have led to, you know, and seeing the the outcome of those, of what happened, you know, I'm, I'm sort of appreciative in, in a way in that, you know, like I've learned so much and grown so yeah. much because of those. And like, you know, Gary Vaynerchuk, you know, I love him to fucking bits, um, but he, he talks so much about how like, you know, although things have gone wrong, you know, people to see that they've failed. But mm. it's not – you haven't failed. You've just found something that hasn't worked. And you can learn so much from your failures. You learn more from your failures than you, your failures than you do your successes. Yep. I mean, I think any, anyone that gets through life and, and has the challenges, they work it out pretty quick. Yep. Um, if we were always successful, we wouldn't be half the people we are. That's it. And if it was easy to do, you know, everyone would be doing it. That's why everyone would be starting a business. That's why everyone would be doing police, you know, like it's... Where's the challenge? That's it. (laughs) Uh, So second question, uh, because it is a creative um, podcast, I kind of like to ask a creative question. And uh, what is your favourite film? 
out of all time. Look, I I love film. I love watching films. There's a heap. But probably my one standout would be uh, Patrick Swayze in Ghost. Ghost. Loved the film. Whoopi Goldberg. Her real name's Karen. She's I don't think got I've a seen that. Ooh, you need to watch yeah. that. I mean, I need, and that's the good thing about this question is that I'm going to get a, a crap load of uh, lists of things to watch. Well, it's the age difference, Leslie. Oh, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> My previous but, guest, Anne, like we, we watched a lot of horror films and we both agreed that Upgrade was one of the best ones out there. So well, that's, a, you, that's a more recent film you probably wouldn't have seen. but Correct. And Ghost, for all of us who know about, is about a, a, a beautiful couple who uh, – the wife gets killed. And That's a beautiful story. Beautiful story. <laughs> Patrick Swayze uh, desires to just see her one more time and uh, hence the title The Ghost. And right. the brilliant uh, comedian actress, Whoopi Goldberg, whose real name is Karen Johnson, so she's got to be a good person. Oh, interesting. I didn't her know that. Her real name is Karen. Interesting. There you go. Um, ask me any movie questions no don't um <laughs> carol we could be here for hours <laughs> so uh whoopi goldberg acts as the medium where he can revisit right. demi moore who played his wife yeah. um i love the concept of ghost i love the spirituality involved behind it i love patrick swayze patrick swayze i pa- have to swayze. be honest um <laughs> Okay, I watched it for Patrick Swayze. Yeah, <laughs> see, that, that's all coming out here. It's all coming out of the woodworks now. Ladies, he's easy on the eye. Yo, Patrick uh, Swayze. Easy Swayze Mate. hips. I mean, Patrick Swayze. <laughs> <laughs> so probably if, with regards to films, yeah, that would be my yeah. favourite, Leslie. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Karen, for coming on the Creative Chats podcast. It uh, means a lot. Um, you're a very big supporter of everything that I do, so it's much appreciated. Thank you for having me. And it's awesome. been an absolute privilege. And uh, just watch out for this guy, folks. He's going to go big places. Oh, stop it. You heard it from me. (laughs) I should be on the red carpet on my first feature film, that's for sure. Absolutely. That's for sure. It's a promise. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, thank you guys so much for watching. If you want to stay up to date with all these podcasts, you can go to creatorstudios.com and head to the podcast section on there. Uh, Or you can watch this on YouTube, on our Creative Studios YouTube channel. Uh, And in the future, you'll be able to uh, listen to this on Spotify and Apple iTunes. Uh, But anyway, that's all for me today. Thank you guys so much for watching and listening. I shall see you guys in the next episode.